Okay, I'm Johanna Ryans, and I am here with Jess Robbins in Macclesfield in the United Kingdom, just uh, south of Manchester. Now, uh, Jess is part of a consortium uh, called Transformation uh, Northwest. Transformation Northwest is a uh, Northwest Consortium doctoral training partnership consisting of uh, six universities, five of whom have uh, participated in a PhD design uh, fellowship, uh, and Jess is focusing her PhD on the role of communities of practice within circular economy organizations. So, um, hi Jess. Hi Johanna. I am really excited because we've had a lot of conversations about um, the climate change dilemma that we're facing. Uh, it is the beginning of first week of March in, in 20, 2019. And uh, as I sit here with you, we just experienced, or Britain experienced a really warm uh, week. So I, I'd like, before I go into anything uh, academic, which is really interesting and at the same time, really academic, um, what was your first, if you can think of, if you had to pinpoint or select any moment, one moment for the time being, what would, what do you remember as your first moment where you went, oh shit? About the climate? Yeah. Um, it was probably, I don't remember if there was a particular oh shit moment, but when I was um, an undergrad, my first week as an undergraduate, in like freshers week, um, I went and watched a program about the effect of Coca-Cola on um, uh, communities in, I think it's Colombia and India, the, the particular film, it was a documentary, it was showing at Bristol University, and what year was this? That would have been 2004. Mm-hmm. Okay. September, October 2004. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so this, this uh, program was showing how much water waste was used by Coca-Cola in... Uh, how much of the local supply of water was used by Coca-Cola... Um, that was stolen from the farmer's land and then they were sold toxic sludge as fertilizer. It was pretty awful. I mean, it was horrific. And then the whole side in Colombia is the sort of how um, uh, Coca-Cola were, I can't remember the actual facts, but it's they were sort of accused of funding, of allowing paramilitaries into their factories to quash any um uh unionization and so it affected um, their their local water and you and they well the indian water. in the indian side it affected the water and on the colombian side it was just basically people who were pro-union uh were being murdered um oh wow yeah for <clears throat> so that's 
I know it's not directly the environment, but that is the first thing that turned me on to political activism, of which uh, protecting the environment is quite a big, what became for me quite a big thing. Um, but there's so many multifaceted aspects to political activism. But well, and that... then you, you became pretty well um, active in, in, in Bristol and, and in, the rest of the, in the rest of this country in England. Yeah, I went to a climate, I think I went to a climate protest probably in 2006 um, in London, a big one. Um, and I just sort of became aware of the issues in the global south and how climate change was going to affect everything from um, the, like how our winters and summers were going to change. They were going to get, you know, wetter and the hurricanes were going to get worse across the across the world and the um, the Middle East and the sort of drier countries were going to become more dry and resources were going to become scarcer and wars were going to break out. Basically what's happening now. And right. yeah, and then loads of refugees were going to turn up. And I mean, all this stuff I learned about in the early, mid-2000s and um, it all started happening te- within 10 years. It's all started happening within 10 years of me learning about it. And I mean, I was learning about it as a sort of undergraduate 20, 21 year old. Um, and before then, my, I think my extent of kind of global activism knowledge was the WWF. So the, um, not the wrestling, the, um, right. the world, the world wildlife, wildlife fund. fund. Yeah. When I was about seven, I was really, really, uh, felt very strongly about the plight of the white rhinos. And then you were always doing something within communities. So before we get into your work, you know, a decade over a decade later, the idea of community was always really important to you. You're a social, you're you're mainly a social science person. Yeah, I think it was more. It's funny because in the earlier my earlier academic career, I sort of struggled to marry what I was doing outside of school with what I was doing inside of school. And I think that was probably a, like a, a bit of blindness on my part. Hmm. I mean, I really tried. I tried to like segue in activism. I mean, I studied documentary film for years and thought it was, you know, that was the way to get people to do stuff was to make really compelling documentaries. But I was a bit shit at it. Like I wasn't very good at making Did you make a film? I made quite a few and they were all awful. Um, because it's actually, you can't make films on your own. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much better to have a team of people who can help you write it. What were your um, films on? Um, I think the first film that I made was on um, ID cards. Um, they were in the 2005, they were talking about bringing in ID cards into the UK. And um, there's a lot of talk saying we don't want them. We don't want to be classified as a number. Mm. Um, which I think amused a lot of my European colleagues because they were like, well, we all have them. There's no problem, but okay, fine. Um, And then I think the second year I made a film about... um, I made a film about trying to challenge... I tried to challenge some of my colleagues to stop using their cars, um, which massively failed. 
kind of what was the thing. Hope? The, the hope was that they would find that the bus or a bicycle was like way better than driving and sitting in traffic. Did any of them listen to you? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you made a film about them not listening to you. I, I, possibly, I can't remember what happened to that film, to be honest. Well, the film was made. So. It, it got made, but then it got immediately consigned to, uh, mm. to history. And then in my third year, I made a documentary about um, the humble bicycle, because I thought that it could do with some more promotion. And um, I, personally, I thought, I loved making that film. That was really fun. I met loads of really good people. I had a great fun making the film, but it was a complete mess in terms mm. of the narrative um, because I'm not necessarily very good at telling stories. Um, I think I'm okay at telling stories, but um, I got a bit uh, carried away and tried to fit as much as possible in 15 minutes, um, including the history of the bike, um, critical masses... Um, uh, bike workshops, um, I, I mean, everything. What's a critical mass? A critical mass is when a group of cyclists come together um, and uh. create a critical mass of cyclists and then um, shut down the road systems okay, of, so of a city. Okay, so that's a good segue to what you're studying now, the idea yeah. of a circular economy um, and... You mentioned earlier that uh, before this started, the idea of productivity is really important um, in these communities of practice you're talking about. Um, what do you see, because uh, right now you're looking at businesses and maybe some of them realize there's a critical mass um, that if it hasn't happened already it, it will kind of a uh, critical mass in um plastic pollution a critical mass in um water pollution in uh in in because the the location of your phd is is really important it's the northwest it's the old industrial area it's kind of a like um the Rust Belt for America. Am I wrong? Kind of. I think um, uh, like Lancashire and um, um, I mean I'm based in Cheshire, but my uh, my university is in Lancaster, and so Manchester and Liverpool were very important in textile production. A lot of textile production, um, as was Lancashire. Um, and I don't know all the details necessarily. I'm not super good at history on this area, but, um, I think most of the sort of steel production, um, happened on the east side of the north. So, um... Where we are now? No, we're on the west side. Oh, okay. So we're on the west side where it's more kind of cotton, um, and, well, Macclesfield is famous for making silk. Um, right, it's the end of the silk, or it was yeah, the part of the silk, of the silk road. road, and okay. a lot of sheep. It's a lot of wool. There's a lot of. I think the this side is sort of is more textiles than necessarily. Um, and then the history steel. of Liverpool with their ports and the and ability Liverpool's to a port city and. Um, so if they didn't produce it here themselves, they definitely historically acted as um, they were gatekeepers for or going over to importers the, of the states. And the West. Okay, so things that came from, from 
from the west of or the came from the east of England would come would leave through the west through Liverpool probably probably they wouldn't go around the top, top of Scotland or no, no they no, would no, just no. be they just go through yeah we have points. um you know a lot of canal systems in this area which was the before they invented the train was the quickest right. way of getting uh products particularly things that were super heavy and couldn't be dragged by horses so would you say and, I, and i'm not sure here i don't know my answer but that the although it's for the northwest it's just generally the north the economy in the north of england has suffered in the last maybe three when do you think that started to really go downhill what, just the economy economically of the, of, of the north mm-hmm. um 60s yeah probably yeah. i mean um yes the six the 60s was probably when the post i mean the post-war period um i think things kind of happened but then didn't really and we, nothing, we took, nothing yeah. like manchester was like this you know, one of the centres of the Industrial Revolution, and it was really wealthy for quite a while. And then um, and then, f- after they started moving manufacturing abroad and it became cheaper to manufacture things overseas, lots of towns found their mills shutting down and they haven't opened again. And a lot of people haven't worked there's you know a few generations so I think you're on a um, in some places it's like the third generations I've heard stories recently of people who've reopened mills and what they've ended up doing is using the people who did work there when they were younger when they were in their 20s who are now just retired they've inviting them back to come and teach everyone how to use the old equipment oh wow and it's their grandchildren who are now taking on the the jobs but it that's that's not a that's not a whole that's not happening across the northwest that's happening in a few towns right. where there are still mills and the equipment is still there it's it's a unicorn it's somewhat of an exception a, the, a little bit to I the think, trend it, yeah i think people are trying i i to be honest i uh i don't know so much about it i've been to a lot of talks about it but I'm not an expert in any way about the sort of manufacturing history of the Northwest um, because I'm not from the Northwest. This is not my uh, history, um, but I live here, so I'm sort of learning about it. And the PhD program you, you're part of is state-funded, and so it's... The, the draw to the uh, the program itself really came from a, the idea that you could uh, it, you could discover more uh, about what the Ellen MacArthur Foundation termed as the circular economy I think um, that was that the uh, I think no when I started the PhD program I didn't know about the circular economy oh you didn't no so um the um i i'd got to a crossroads um this happens with me sometimes when i reach a point and i'm like right well my job is about to finish i was working for the fire brigade um not in macclesfield i was working for the cheshire fire brigade so it was across the county okay um but no not in macclesfield um and 
that job was con- was a contract and my contract had been renewed three times and they I had to finish um so I'd got to this point where I was like right well my contract's about to finish I really need to find something else to do and a friend of mine said oh my uh, PhD program is looking for they're starting a new version of this program that I've just finished you should apply well I thought I'm not ready I can't do a PhD I'm not clever enough I'm not like the sort of person, I don't know what I would do a PhD in and my friend said, that doesn't matter. You don't have to have, it's not a traditional PhD program. You don't have to have a a subject that you want to delve into at the beginning. So traditional PhD programs are basically an extension of your master's. You work out the subject that you want to focus on in your master's and then you do a PhD to focus on in on that subject. Well, my master's was really broad and general and I didn't find anything that I super wanted to focus on through the master's program which is why I had like um seven years five five years off finished in 2012 yeah five years off my of academia doing other things um and that was in Bristol that was in Bristol yes then my master's was in Bristol um and so she just sort of, she's quite pushy, my friend. She yes, good friends me. are. Yeah, and saying, you need to apply, you need to apply. So I did, and I just thought, ah, oh, I'll apply. Well, that's interesting. So you really so, just so it, it really didn't know was, no, at all what you were no, going to didn't be know what I wanted thinking to do. about. But you had the idea of environmentalism mm. and action mm. in your head. <sighs> hmm. So I, how did you get there? How did you come to the circular economy? Well, the first... So the um, the PhD program was is designed to respond to the government's industrial strategy. So the government, the UK government, um, wrote published an industrial strategy in September of or November of last year. Two thousand. No, two thousand seventeen. Seventeen. Um, just as I started. So the funding that I was given was for a um, was to look at how the creative industries are responding, could respond to the industrial strategy that the government was setting up. And I worked in the creative industries. I did a cultural media studies degree and master's. I've worked as a graphic designer. I've worked as a film producer. You know, I've, I've worked in the creative industries for a long time. And I... So that's sort of what interested me. interested me. And then the first session we had... We first met myself and my colleagues from the Transformation Northwest program. Uh, so there's 12 of us from five different universities. And one of the supervisors said, these are the subjects that they are... They hadn't finalised the industrial strategy, but they had... Um, I think they had like... Uh, I can't remember what, how many pillars they had. It's something like 10 pillars or 8 pillars. It, it changed in the final edit. Pillars as in topics. As in topics, yeah. Umbrella Found, or foundations subjects. or whatever they wanted to call them. They kept changing what they called them. Yeah. But, and one of them was um, environmental, environmentalism. The environment. And and I sort of thought, well... Just in big, bold letters. It was environment. It, something like that. Yeah. Sustainability of, of the Something UK. very something catch-all. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah, a very sort of typical government phrase where they're just trying to cover all the bases. And, you know, one was manufacturing, and another one was like 
supply chain. It was all kind of like that. And the... So this supervisor said... Um, she just said, right, well... Because she said, think, look at all these and see which ones interest you. And she said, it doesn't have to be anything that you know anything about. You just have to... It just has to be something that you find interesting and you would... Um, and then we want you to do a little presentation on on it, on this area. And for our next meeting. So we had another meeting sort of scheduled for so like kind six of weeks. So try, try something from the palette and see if you like see it. See what fits. Yeah. And, and I put my name down on a couple of things because I was... What the other one I want? I was... I put my name down on other because other was something more creative industries. I was looking at, I was interested in creative clusters and, and um, the communities of creatives. Um, but then also this sort of sustainability umbrella. I think it was like renewable energy. I think that was the term. And I, so I did my little presentation on sort of renewables in, in the Northwest. So I found out about um, so the Northwest has loads of uh, wind, loads of wind mm. turbines out in the sea. Um, and we have loads being built, loads of contracts. Um, when they, um, just as I was writing it, there the, there was a big um, bid. The government sold a load of um, wind contracts and actually made wind energy cheaper per kilowatt or gigawatt I can't remember than nuclear when they'd always thought that nuclear was going to be cheaper and actually they've not even built the nuclear power plants and by the time they build the nuclear power plants the wind energy is going to be super way for cheaper the country for the country wow. and you know you can hear the wind outside this yes is, right now yeah, yes right today now. was very windy you today is it. incredibly windy and yes. this is a fairly normal thing for us now and why not why aren't we using this energy um, there's if you go to the coast the sea is absolutely full of wind turbines um they've actually disproven the idea that it the sound uh disrupts bird migration yeah, that's patterns all so there's rubbish. just to say as a caveat mm. to anyone who's listening <laughs> and they had so they had loads of um uh so i found all this information out and in my research and finding out about the northwest and sort of energy and, and renewables and stuff i stumbled upon the circular economy and the ellen MacArthur foundation and the um the work that they're doing and i just thought wow this is super interesting um and then everything changed for a while <laughs> and I didn't, uh, I was looking more at, so we had to then write a response document and to the industrial strategy. So they published the proper industrial strategy in November. We had to write a response document as a cohort of people who had never really met. We'd met like three times and they said, right, you've got to write a... And you had very, as it document. seems, as it seems you all had varying different uh, levels of really knowledge. different backgrounds really different knowledge some there's some people on my course who have been in academia they are in their mid-20s so they're just doing academia I've got other people on my course who haven't done it for 20 years 
We, and we then were, you were just and then learning. I think somewhere in the middle, yeah. and you know, and there's. And so they they got themselves together and responded to this. We did, and um, I was the editor, so I couldn't think of. There wasn't a lot of brain power for, you know, my supervisor. Like, so, but what about your PhD? I know you're writing this document, but what about your actual PhD? Um, and I sort of thought through writing the document that I so my original title was. How can communities contribute to productivity and resilience in the Northwest? Um, and I started looking at communities of practice. Um, and I looked at a pilot project which involved working with libraries. And the big criticism that we had from the sort of supervisory team was not necessarily my supervisors, but the sort of overall supervisory team was that it wasn't an it wasn't a business and we were supposed to be the aim of our phd program is to develop new products and services for the northwest and, and the library said, wasn't yeah and they said a it's business. not a it's not considered a business you need to work out a way of working with businesses so i sort of thought well you know I had to have a bit of a rethink about my direction and then i came back to the circular economy um, and then really surprised myself when I was going through my notes. I think I just had a mind, I'd just forgotten loads of stuff that happened at the very beginning. Went back through my so, notes and found all this stuff about the circular economy so that I had let's go written. back to the very beginning because you were the one who introduced me to the circular economy. And yeah. um, we, we've brought up the Ellen MacArthur Foundation yeah. a few times now. Yeah. How would you place it? Can you give some context for what those two things are if you were oh, to define okay. them? okay. So um, the the idea of the circular economy it's it's um, uh, the the so the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is a foundation set up by uh, Ellen MacArthur who um, sailed around the world uh, single handedly in the early two thousands I think it was two thousand and two um, and a woman yeah Ellen MacArthur Ellen MacArthur mm. um, and she is from Derbyshire, which is the county next to this one, um, and it's fairly landlocked, and she just really enjoyed sailing and decided to sail around the world. And She's incredible. It's funny enough, because you're... Because I'm you also a, a sailor, yeah. yes. Yeah, from a place that has no sea near it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The irony and, of life. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And she... Um, the, her story is really interesting, but one of the sort of things that I took away from it was that she was on this boat and on her own for a really long time and everything that she had to, everything that she needed had to be on the boat. And she also couldn't ha really have any waste because it all had to stay on the boat. So she had to, and I think, you know, she had a lot of time on her own to think about this sort of thing about how basically the planet is a bit like her boat and everything that we, all the waste that we produce, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not leaving the planet, it's still staying here. And then she did a lot of research and set up this foundation and they published a thing in 2012 that sort of described the circular economy. They, they weren't the first people to describe the circular economy by any means, um, but it's the first group to um, kind of bring all the different ideas together and, and also promote it as a way of, for businesses to make money uh, through it, which is, which is you know, important because you can't, you're never going to get businesses on board if they think they're going to lose money. 
ever. I mean, it's just not going to work. Um, so, um, so that's sort of, and then the, so this, the idea of the circular economy is sort of start is, is the idea that at the moment we live in the, the sort of economy that we live in, um, is a linear one where we take stuff out of the ground, you turn it into a thing, you use the thing for however long it's probably not its whole lifespan how long you need it and then you chuck the thing in the bin and the thing goes into landfill and then that just sits and rots it's, that's what you would call planned obsolescence is it not? and there's parts planned or, or i mean designed obsolescence might. is part of that but also just i mean you, you know packaging mm. plastic pa- single use single use packaging we've all seen blue planet and the turtles and the, the stuff in the sea and the beaches covered in the jellyfish that, the, the... that's actually a plastic bag upside down. Exactly. Yeah. Or all, all that sort of thing. It's it's quite um it's quite common in our current narrative. Our, yes. Yeah. And um there's so there's all of that, but then there's all sorts of there's loads of other aspects of the circular economy as well. So it's all looking at um you know, you using renewables in finding ways of using one so basically um it, it's that's that's that old adage i don't know if you have it in the states but oh, one man's trash is another man's treasure yes yeah 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 so it's it's that so you, you know one person one organization might you have loads of offcuts of something or some sort of waste product well that waste product could be used by somebody else to make a thing i i comes to mind the idea of um the america's uh thrift shop uh economy is now Ex- massive in because africa imports all of our uh used clothing and then they have massive open air markets where they sell that's basically their clothing economy in general is our throwaway clothes yeah so there's all i mean there's all sorts of things the sharing economy is part of the circular economy the idea is that you rather than buying something you you find someone who's got it already and you can borrow it. Right, what is it? Reuse. So it's, re- so there's, it, it starts off with three R's and then you can go up to four and then f- like six R's. So the three R's are reduce, reuse, recycle. And then you can add um, reduce, reuse, um, repurpose and recycle. So if you think of recycling as being... I've seen it described um, in Cradle to Cradle, which is a really good uh, book. And that's a manifesto for design. Okay, I'll put it As, in the links yeah, for this. Um, there's a... Uh, they call it downcycling. So the problem with recycling in a lot of cases is that um, what was a sort of single type of plastic, for example, like a... Uh, PVC gets mixed up with other sorts of plastic and becomes a, a worse version of of plastic of a type of plastic. Um, so it could be PET one, which is like plastic bottles, and that sort of stuff gets turned into socks and clothes and t-shirts and and can be reused. But then as soon as it starts getting mixed with other things, it's actually losing its quality and it's it's downgrading to a worse type of plastic. Or a worse product. Um, so recycling and so, repurposing have so if their you problems. Say, no, so if you say that repurposing instead 
is where you take the thing and you turn it, you kind of work out a way of turning that thing into something else without decreasing the value of the material, okay. without damaging the like um, the in- integrity of the material. So, okay. so glass is something that's quite, you, you people can recycle, I think, as long as the glass is kept sort of reasonably, as long as it's managed reasonably well, you can turn glass into new glasses. Or tin is quite good. Like different metals, uh, they recycle them quite well. There's like they're high value and they've got a good, you know, good stuff happens. You know, toilet paper made out of newspapers, not you know recycled into new from newspapers, whatever. That sort that stuff can survive. I'm going off track. So then there's ways of adding. You said there is. Three or four. There's reduce, reuse, recycle, and then there's a reduce, few more. Reuse, yeah, and then stages. so then you can have refuse. What does that mean? So refuse would be taking your own cutlery when you go out to eat. Ah, wow. So, so refusing the social so norm. So ref- refusing to accept the plastic cutlery from the canteen that you're eating in, or refusing the plastic straw, or you know refusing to have a lid on your takeaway coffee so maybe this would be a good moment you could mention your your most current uh just side project oh my yeah okay so my tiny i have a um, i'm part of a local it's it started off as a it was called mactastic less plastic the thing about living in a town called macclesfield is that it's abbreviated to mac and mac can be added to pretty much anything uh, to make new words, it's it's one of those um, <laughs> places. It's quite useful. So right. it was Mactastic less plastic, and it's just been reduced to Mactastic because there's loads of issues, and it's it's a sort of environmental group. I would say pressure group, but there's no one really to pressure. I mean, the, other than the town council, who don't have a huge amount of power. Um, but, but it is I've, a rather conservative town. It's a so rather conservative town. Next so having to, a nice little, mm-hmm. um, having a little, some little projects is pretty good. So my project that I'm running through Mactastic is a mug library, um, and it's we have a monthly market, and the mug library isn't completely like a mug as in a coffee mug. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. As in Not a, mud. Mug. Yeah. A mug. Yeah. yeah. M-U-G. <laughs> okay. And um, so I've asked people to donate mugs to me and um, and I wash them and then I take them to the market once a month and people can use the mugs instead of taking a paper cup from the coffee vendors. And then they return the mugs to me dirty and I will wash them up again. It's very simple. Um, people seem to think it's amazing, but it's it's just a nice idea and it just means that Hopefully the bins won't be quite so overflowing with paper cups at the end of the market. Yeah, exactly. They it's... really are. I can. I'll give mm. you some pictures that um, we took of the last bins, just full of paper cups. Okay. Um, so see yeah, if I can so, add them. so that's a sort of ref- so that's part of the that's a tiny part of the circular economy. It's just it's, and that's just reusing stuff. That's reusing stuff that already exists. Because when I first suggested it to this group, somebody said, "Oh, we can buy a load of mugs and have." Mactastic written on them and I said no no that's not the point the, right. the point isn't to buy a load of new crockery like china obviously that's 
you know, you don't, that's not a throwaway thing. Defeats the purpose. But that defeats the purpose. I just, I'm just going to ask for people's old mugs. And And how many, how many mugs did you end up inheriting? um, I've got almost a hundred mugs. Yeah. Um, and that's, which is amazing. A hundred mugs. And that's two sessions that I've collected mugs at, uh, two markets I've collected mugs at. And, I'm going to get more because every time people go, oh, this is brilliant. I'll bring you some mugs. I have a whole box in my cellar, Mm. which is almost everybody has. I mean, I have a lot of boxes in my cellar now because I have a mug library in my cellar. But this, you know, and it's it's just so simple. And people say, well, where do you get the mugs from? I say, people have donated them because everyone has loads of mugs. And people, so that's refuse. This is a good example of, of the refuse. That's a really good example of refuse, okay. yeah. And also reuse. The okay. refuse and reuse. And then the one last thing I want to ask you about was what you were working on today in uh, researching uh, now that your advisory committee kind of said, well, a uh, library is more in the uh, public domain than the private. It's not a business. It's not a company. Um and so you, you sat uh, down and looked at something like 100, close to 150 companies today from a, a list and uh, really went through the process of researching their websites and combing through their, um, their site maps to see if they were interested in, uh, had any um, uh, PR on um, circular economics. And so what did you find? So the 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 group I was looking through, so I met these people that run a directory for chemicals in the Northwest. Um, I'm just looking at, I mean, chemicals aren't necessarily the my main aim. I'm supposed to be looking at the creative industries, but I'm taking more of a stance that most jobs have creativity in them. Yeah. <laughs> and that the creative economy is in fact Hopefully our quite child. embedded yeah um in in what in a lot of what we do um and um so i met this this people from the northwest chemicals and it's a directory and they said well we don't really know much about the circular economy but if you can find any contacts through us that could you could work with then by all means tell us and we'll get in touch with them for you so i copied all of the um all of the companies off their website and I've just put them in a spreadsheet and slowly gone through everyone and just decided and found which ones are circular economy and which one it wasn't even which ones are circular economy I I wanted companies that specifically talk about the circular economy as part of their um sort of corporate uh imaginings you're not imaginings but you know their strategy their corporate strategy um i'm not a business person i don't know the lingo so their corporate strategy that they are working towards the circular economy and i found about 14 out of a hundred over 140 companies and bear in mind these are all chemical companies so some of them are really specific but i mean and there's quite a lot of I've been speaking to somebody who works for a chemical company that and they don't use the circular economy but this guy has been super helpful and just keeps sending me things and he's part of the he's the sustainability officer for this tiny company 
in Blackburn. Well, and things in cases like that, that one person in the company, even if they don't yet have anything in their the ma- fact manifesto, manifesto, the idea, I feel, as we were talking, uh, mentioning earlier, is that it really just starts with planting the seeds sometimes. Yeah. Um, but he, so, um, I mean, the chemical industry as a whole is very, very highly regulated, as you would imagine. Or hope. Um, well, as you would hope, but I mean, the EU is pretty good at, at being very, oh, very Okay, that's good. Good. America at, is not at this moment. Yeah, I, I know. But, yeah. well, for, for, for right now, it is the first of, it is the third of March, so we have... Um, 23 days until Brexit, so who knows after that. But right now, as of this week, uh, we are still part of the EU and thus still governed by EU regulations on things like toxic chemicals. So, And a lot of these companies, you have these processes in place and they're very embedded and they are sort of sustain and they are sustainable practices. But And in general, I, I think it seems the ethical... In a world of uh, questionable ethics, the way to win customers is really just to ha- at least feign, if not hopefully, fully invest in sincere um, environmental uh, practices as a way to win customers. Yeah, and, and customer I, so this is this is why I was yeah. this is part of why I was looking at um, the circular economy as a as a phrase within these companies because. Um, if you look up something like sustainability, it can be a bit vague, and I, and there is a very big um, issue these days. I I think with um, greenwashing, in a company will tell so explain you. Explain that. So so a company will tell you that they are really eco. They're eco friendly, but actually. It's just a sort of front, and if you dig a little bit deeper into either their practices or some of the stuff they're using, the 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 chain isn't necessarily fully there. And I think in if in the future, I don't, I don't want to make this too long, but uh, I think from my conversations with you, the circular and the idea of you know basic R rules: reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, uh, resist was it uh, or refuse. refuse yeah um it's not like it's not as though when you say circular economy you're saying uh you must adhere to a bible of very specific uh incomprehensible yeah. rules and bureaucracy it's more or less this like the boat very simplified logics mm-hmm. But tenable ones, and so sustainability, if anything, is this this nebulous uh, amoeba zone that we've kind of fallen into. Um, so it 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 is a positive, um, but pragmatic and utilitarian um, uh, methodology or you know strategy for the future. Yeah. So I think it's it's. Um, um, I mean, I'm not saying that people that organizations or corporations that say that they are sustainable and have decent sustainable practices don't and that they are all greenwashing because they're probably not but 
for example, I looked at a uh, one of the companies that I looked at is an extremely large international oil company, mm. and they sort of say, "Oh yes, we're doing stuff in the circular economy," and you think, "Well, yeah, but you're also, you know, developing tar sands in Canada, yeah, and an oil oil producer, and you're an oil producer, <laughs> so fundamentally, you're not a sustainable." organization Mm. at all you are in fact a fossil fuel part of the fossil fuel industry although in america i I know that i I, i'm I'm not sure which companies but um i'm forgetting them but there are ones that are realizing as they did in the 70s but then had amnesia up until just a few years ago that they should actually start investing in so oil companies are investing in wind and renewables and maybe in the hopes of it's like a tobacco industry uh, starting to create vapes instead of actual cigarettes but if they but if they actually said i mean as of yet we haven't had any large oil companies turn around and say we will no longer be using selling oil we are just (laughs) going to do renewables (laughs) that has not yet happened has not yet happened and Hopefully it will happen. Mm. Um, so what what's, what are some of the books you've been reading that have been so depressing? We can end on a depressing nihilistic okay, so, note. So I've... Um, they're not all depressing. I mean, the, the one I've got on the go right now is... Um, oh, shit, I can't remember the name. Let me just, let me just see if I can find it. It's, it's in my bag, I think. Uh, it's in my handbag. No, it isn't. Um, well, the one that I have on the table right now is, uh, as you look for your book, is Our Future Earth, How the Planet Will Change in the Next 100,000 Years by Kurt Stagger. And um, I think I was telling you a little bit about it. Um, it's, he's a, a paleoclimatologist who uh, believes in describing not only the next... 80 to 100 years uh, of climate change, but rather putting it in a context of um, 100,000 years, including um, our ice ages and our interglacial interglacial periods um, as a way of getting humans to have some humility um, and fighting the hubris of um, of time and our inability to understand um, our place in it. So this, I as now you you found your book, but I just also wanted to do a plug for um, Mr. Stagger's book because I've been reading it and it's been really interesting. It's providing a, a way of just kind of seeing the speck of time where um, we're uh, in and the idea that what we're calling an anth Anthropocene or Anthropocene is uh, uh, meaning the end of human life in the next possible hundred years um, is is really um, a biological process and and it is of our own making but it's also you know on the grand scope of things um, not a big surprise not a big shock um, yeah. Because it's happened to you know the dinosaurs and it happened to um, uh, other li- forms of life, but they 
um, you know, so he talks about, let's see, what was it? Uh, the, uh, the change from photosynthesis, uh, the idea that photosynthesis uh, and uh, um, uh, um, small cells' ability uh, to change light and produce um, oxygen as a waste uh, was the extinction of um, anaerobic uh, beings which populated the earth before photosynthesis and it was the beginning of an oxygenated planet and hence you know we're here today um, but at that moment if all those um, anaerobic uh, life forms could talk they would be going oh my god there's so much pollution in the air can you believe it we're all gonna die and they were right they died so <laughs> you know that was a natural biological effect of um, a bacteria um, extinction, but, um, so yes, that's, that's my book, the future, um, the future earth, how the planet will change in the next 100,000 years. But yes, you found your book. So I did. Uh, what so is it? basically you're suggesting that we are a bacteria on the earth. I mean, not you, but the author. Yeah. Pro um, okay. yeah, I don't, I am not, I can't put words into his mouth, but the yeah. idea <laughs> of, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I took away from it was uh, that he said, um, naturally, um, any living thing produces waste. So the fact that where um, humanity is now kind of a overpopulated um, being, uh, organism on um, a small planet, that it's only it it is and it isn't only natural that we're going to be swimming in our own feces. Um, the problem is we've made like some really icky feces that's also killing basically every single other form of life as well. Yeah. Gosh, that is depressing. It's so depressing. I love it. Yeah. In a way, but <laughs> also not. <laughs> so I'm I'm reading um just to lighten the mood. I'm reading the Burning Question, um, which is by Mike Berners Lee and Duncan Clark. And it's uh, so the tagline is we can't burn half the world's oil, coal and gas. So how do we quit? And it um, it situates the book within um, a article, an article written by um, oh, so the introduction is the forward is Bill McKibben. It was a oh, OK. He, he wrote an article for Rolling Stone magazine. And this whole book is basically takes that um, as a starting point. I think actually they came out well i think the book was written as the roll before the rolling stone magazine article was written but it's about the same thing so they used it as a most of it as a forward but it sort of points out how there's there's so the 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 forward um so bill mckibben points out the sort of three key numbers that we are uh we're looking at the what? first being 2 degrees celsius and that is the sort of agreed on uh, rise in global temperatures. No turning back point. No point. turning back point, although that's quite quickly debunked later on. And it said actually the likelihood is that we are, that our carbon sinks, i.e. the ocean, is um, holding way more of the heat than we first anticipated. So they think that it's possibly half a degree we're actually half a degree out. So they think that, so the current, according to this book, so this book's published in 2013, so it's, it's a few years old, um, it was 0. 0.8, 
of a degree wow, that's a warmer lot. than pre-industrial so levels. So then if you actually add another half onto that, that's 1.3, 1.4 degrees warmer than so we're actually a lot closer to the two degrees and that was 2013 and this was 2013 and then the second number is um 565 gigatons and that is the amount of carbon that we can put into the atmosphere before reaching two degrees 565 gigatons yeah of carbon that's the estimate um but again this is a reasonable estimate and is probably way under because you know they like to under i mean they are they i say under i mean over way over what we can actually do and we're not nothing is going down like it as as far as this book knows as in from it's what six six years old now um it as all the efforts that you can do in one place are being happily undone somewhere else um and then the third number is um 200 and, no 2795 gigatons now that is the amount of carbon already contained in the proven coal, oil and gas fields. That is the stuff that we know about. So if that stuff is taken out and burnt, that's five times the number of the, of the amount that we can put into the atmosphere. So I don't understand how okay. these uh, three numbers are... Um... Um, how they're linked yeah how he links them so the first one is the two degree rise Mm -hmm. the second number of uh, 565 gigatons is the amount of carbon that can be in the atmosphere before we reach two degrees right celsius rise right and then the third number of 2795 gigatons is the amount of carbon the potential so it's yeah, like that we know about, and that's mm. before they've discovered any other ones. Before they frack the whole of the UK, um, that's the stuff that is in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. That's the stuff that we are fully aware exists, and that's all of it. Yeah, by now we have a satellite. There's, uh, you just we know that we know exactly to the T what we have based on our technology, which is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. And so I, I kind of understand now it's saying this is, this is the temperature we don't want. Um, this is how much we're allowed before we get that temperature. And then this is how much we have. And there are some... To continue our addiction. Yeah. Basically. And there are some very powerful countries that would prefer it because obviously in that is locked up I mean, there's a number. So we have to keep 80% of those reserve locks locked away, but it's something like, um, they do talk about it. Ah, yes, it's something 20 billion, $20 trillion in assets hmm. is still in the ground. So what is your favorite um, year of this book? What's the, what's the ick? So far, yeah. as I'm on chapter... Three, so far. 
um, is probably this scary ass curve. Okay, can here. you explain that? Um... This is the um, annual man-made emissions of carbon dioxide, and it is a it is a traditional graphic curve, like graph curve. Um, uh, it has a proper name somewhere. Um, the okay, it's an exponential curve. So for any statisticians out there, it's the one that goes straight up and keeps going. Um, it, up. On a, no, so it's it's not a it's not a straight line. It's a curve. So at any point, the steepness is proportional to the height. Um, but not only that, but the rate of increase is proportional to the steepness. In other words, it's the type of curve you get when the more you have of something, the faster it grows. Oh, okay. So at some point, they always collapse, mm. these curves. And our carbon, so the annual man-made carbon emissions of carbon dioxide is a very neat correlation with this curve. So I want to cap this at an hour. In the next, uh, if you were given a, about a minute and a half, what would you say personally uh, you see for yourself in the future? As a human being, um, what are your... Um, your aspirations as a as a human in this life. Okay, that's a I mean, deep do you question. enjoy? Do you um, do you wrestle with the idea of um, of um, living uh, living where you live? Do you wrestle with the idea? Uh, of um some of some of your your future plans um what are you um are you thinking about um uh contingency plans do you think about um are you gaining any skills uh you know are you prepping are you thinking what what's your um what are your reactions personally as you go through this academic journey it's um it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of writing and thinking for businesses and the the greater good of um, communities, which we all love. But as a community member, what do you um, what do you find yourself focusing on uh, in daily um, daily life? As you you know, well, um, I think that I think it's really important to just. Um, to sort of show people that you can be just try and be more conscientious about the choices that I make in my life um so we recently put solar panels on our roof and I feel that's doesn't do a huge amount I mean it it might do something but it's like it it's a it's a thing it's something that we could do um I think I need to have a serious look at my the amount that I like to travel by plane okay um, which I some some years I don't fly at all last year I flew a lot which was terrible and I need to not for a while and um and I think that I will um start growing more food my own food um I don't eat meat and um i'm trying to keep my uh any dairy local I'm trying to keep my dairy consumption as local as possible 
I'm trying to think about the miles that my food travels as well. Um, I'm just trying to think about the miles of the, my stuff has to travel for me to have it. Um, I was, I've always been a big user of other, reusing and repurposing other people's things. So this table came from my parents. I got these chairs from my, from a neighbor. I bought them off a local. Use this app. Okay, so Jackie, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, I'm Jackie Clark, and I'm one of the artists at the print mill in Macclesfield. And so you've been uh, an artist all your life. You've been yes, I've working. been both um, working as an artist, but also teaching art for a considerable part of my life. What kind of teaching? Um, teaching art. What kind of art, and to whom? Ah, oh, right. Well, I've taught all ages and all abilities, but I ended up uh, specialising in teaching people with uh, in, within the autistic spectrum. Nice. Uh, mostly because I thoroughly enjoy doing that. They mm -hmm. tend to think out of the box. There are no barriers. Whereas if you're teaching mainstream children and adults, they tend to be quite conventional. And copying masters and yeah. things like that. There's, there's a very, there tends to be a bit of a, a rigid, a more rigid approach to what art actually is. Mm. So um, I think there's two questions I, I want to ask about art. Or Jess and I had, Jess, what's your first question? Because I have another um, version of you the question. Okay. Well, we were just discussing as we were walking around in the sunshine, um, what would, what would art look like? post-apocalypse or we can so the podcast can use is about the word kind of and climate anthropocene yeah so, so that's really what we're talking about the the term anthropocene is uh the idea that we're living in the era of man uh killing man itself effect on man-made man suicide and if if the apocalypse happens soon what or whenever it does happen what might art look like post-apocalypse when we're all when there's about you know a minimal number of people struggling to survive i think there would be a recording of what's happened people would be recording what they've felt and seen and experienced they would possibly be finding some way to tell future generations why it happened and to why there should be a different approach to the world there may be, if there was an awful lot of things destroyed, a preservation of stories, um, of the origins of man, the myths and legends, um, to preserve them for future generations, as many records may well have been destroyed. Um, I think what would be mostly on their minds there was preserving the past but passing on the message to future generations about how and why the apocalypse happened and warnings maybe <laughs> yeah the idea of myths is really interesting it got me thinking and wondering what our myths our current myths are maybe the myth of liberty and democracy or who are our current um, archetypes of, um, of power and um, who we model ourselves as a, as a culture. Um, 
I don't know, what, do you, would, what would you think of, what comes to mind as a, a mythology, a modern mythology today? Maybe mm. sports footballers and, um, you know. Yes, fleetingly famous people. It's the, um, I think at the moment, it's the uh, quick fix, the um, throwaway society, throwaway people, throwaway um, mm. nothing lasting, uh, sort of ephemeral fashion, if you like, and objects. Uh, and if how somebody would feel after the apocalypse, they may well have very strong feelings about how things were and a clearer vision maybe than we have because we're in the middle of it so what happened during the bubonic plague and the artwork then right like that was pretty <laughs> that was pretty gory that was pretty gory artwork wasn't it I, I think a lot of the war dark. artists as well if you look at mm. the war artists um they were real, they set out to show what the horrors of war and what went on um, about we were supposedly making a better world and we just stripped it bare. Uh, so yeah. yes, that would be a, a guide, an indication to the sort of things that I think an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic artist <laughs> would be making. Cool. So my follow-up question a little bit more positive um, a few months ago I sat well I I was married to a, um, a musician and he was very folk American folk blues um, and uh, we had the running joke that uh, what he sang about in his songs often came true and this idea that it was very melancholic and um, um, self-fulfilling prophecy of um, the heart and the romantic and um, and I uh, as I got into climate change and I studied the ocean and um, spoke with Jess here on she's really opened my mind in so many ways and and I'm sitting with him and I'm going well what would songs about um, how would you bring that into your music? Because I'm, I love punk, and I love the idea that there's political uh, uh, ways of singing about truths of um, dangers of society, and we're kind of good with political, um, like human politics, but there's the climate and the environment and the nature, like as nature, as in mother nature, that kind of, I don't, I don't, I don't feel it seeps into the, the, it doesn't really seem to have a place, or I started to search for whether or not it had a place in, first in music, because this is a conversation with my ex-husband, and I would say, well, what would a song sound like if you were to sing about, um, maybe mother nature as a woman that you fell out of love with or what would it what would it sound like if um you had a fight with the earth which is really kind of what we're doing 
without realizing it, it's a very subconscious dilemma. Humanity is subconsciously sitting with it and trying to avoid it, as you do if something's in your subconscious. So, um, I don't know, does that resonate with you? What do you think of that? I think the trouble, well, if it's self-prophesied, the idea of what it would look like. What What would, or can you think of any things you've come across that, any artists, any art, different mediums that go, oh, I'm, I'm talking about it. I guess in the 60s they did, in America they had a lot, but it was kind of, you know, in retrospect, hippy-dippy, and it's just kind of coy and cute, or at least I see it that way. I'm like, oh, that's very cute. You sang about farms and sheep. You know, but now it has a necessary... Um, potential of of violence and destruction, so it can't really be sung about in the same way, hopeful way. There's another way of looking at it. If you um, rather than, like you said, singing about self fulfilling prophecies, how about making it a positive message, and so it's self fulfilling. So rather than bringing out, creating something that isn't there yet but it's on its way there how about turning it on its head and creating something positive and new and then sending that out Hmm. so rather than going on about the negatives would it not be better to show how things could be or should be yeah and get people wanting that as being a far more acceptable alternative yeah it's harder to I think I mean we've I think we saw it a lot with Brexit in that the, mm. the Remain message was quite negative and yeah. it didn't work and so we all know now know that the negative stuff it's not attractive people it's don't not like attra- it people don't want to they've got enough issues of their own without wallowing and going it's like overloading people but you can give them hope yeah. and say this is the way forward this is the light let's follow this path yeah then they're going to feel uplifted and they're going to want to go there whereas if you're telling everybody how terrible it is then and then sort of, they're going to, going to get, they're either going to do sort of <laughs> good ignoring or they're going to uh, walk away from it because they've got enough to think about in their own personal lives without adding to it and then the next uh prerogative might be encouraging uh encouraging um, artists to want to uh, incorporate it in their work and saying mm-hmm. um, that's one of the things I found myself saying to my uh, my artist friends including my my ex-husband was it should be just as much a, a politician's agenda on the politician's agenda uh, it should be on any artist's agenda mm-hmm. that that might be Uh, part of their intent as an artist that if I am going to be socially positioning myself as an artist and a creator of art at the moment I have to somehow um, uh, wrestle and and incorporate the idea that I it is somewhat of a duty to uh, uh, wrestle with that question Mm. and and, and incorporate it. I used to be told uh, in another life um, don't come to me with problems come to me with answers right that's 
that's lovely. That's a great thing to end on. And that's a great way to end. Thank yeah. you so much, Jackie. Thanks, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Sorry. You have, to, do you have to go. You have to get to work. I'll be thinking about that. Yes, I've got the car. It's fine. Okay. okay, we're back again, and we're going to introduce a second artist. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself, Susan? Hello, my name's Susanna Pell. I'm an artist. I collect discarded objects, for example, old electrical items, lamps, um, pens, plastic things, bits and bobs, which are generally broken, and I draw and paint from them, um, exploring where they came from and their destiny, so where they'll end up in the world um, after you know their, their, their purpose has sort of been and gone. Um, climate change is actually at the f has been at the forefront of my mind for the last couple of years. Obviously, I learnt about it um, at school, you know, over 15 years ago. Uh, but over the last couple of years, it feels like it's become this really scary thing that means that my purpose as an artist has had to change and catch up with that. Whereas I used to look a lot at identity, personal identity. Now it feels like I have to explore um, what the world is going to look like in, in the future. And I think that's a really good segue to what, I'm, what uh, Jess and I are, are looking at right now on your, on your screen. Uh, and we're going to put up your website uh, link when you, when you uh, offer it to us. But what we're looking at right now is a black and white um, image of uh, a jumble of wires and it has a really nice uh, tonality of black and white and so you uh, to just I'd like you to explain that a little bit because you've you've uh, collected um, you've you've asked for donations on wires for example so as a project so maybe explain that a little bit so I first with the jumble of wires that we're looking at this the one the one that currently looking at is my own personal collection of jumble of wires um, I'm the sort of person and I'm sure a lot of people are very similar um, I, I have a box in my bedroom where I just mm. put my cables and I only sort it out when I need one and I have to sort of untangle it um, and therefore over the say the last 10 years this jumble has just become this monster of wires and I used to always look at it sort of quite guiltily thinking I'm going to have to, I need to sort this out. And then the last year I've started drawing it and thinking, um, you know, actually I don't want to sort it out, I want to leave it and it's become quite sort of beautiful, however also horrific to think that most of the cables that have been made still exist. Most cables and electrical items don't actually get recycled. And then I started to think about, right, I've got this jumble of wires and cables and plugs. Where, where do they end up? So I um, did a bit of research and I found out that you know, most of our wires, I think some research was done, I don't know if it's the most up-to-date research, it was done about five years ago, um, but 16 to 90% of our electrical waste um, goes, gets illegally transported to places like Ghana and India, um, third world countries and dumped in rivers and basically people are, um, are 
getting torches and burning them to get the pieces of gold and copper out. So it's not only polluting rivers, but it's also poisoning the atmosphere for the people who live um, nearby and, and are actually doing the work. So although, you know, you said it's a nice tonal piece and if you look at it, it might look quite gently drawn, it's, I also like to sort of explore the, the horror of where, you know, how we... The, the impact, the way we live our lives, and we've got this magical internet and magical lighting, but what that means to, um, you know, the rest of the world and the, how it's having an imp impact. Cool. Yeah, it's amazing. I, it makes me think, not to digress too much, but the idea of um, the global south is really finding, because they are the um, inheritors of our mess uh, at the moment. They're also the ones at the forefront of, pun intended, untangling it for mm -hmm. us. And then kind of um, being the place for innovation and innovative social thinking. And we sit up here in Northern Comfort and think uh, of, uh, well, as Jess is doing, we're working within our own playground up here and that's there's nothing wrong with that. but. Um, I think maybe what I hear you saying is there's possibility in learning from uh, learning from that process, uh, and um, and it is real. It really is quite beautiful. This this tangled mess of wires. It's it's kind of soothing. It's this abstraction. It's almost like a modern Pollock where it just speaks to your psyche of my mind looks like that jumble of wires when I think about the time I spend on a screen uh, looking through Twitter and finding a lot of really interesting information or bits of storytelling and and really just it's it there's irony and it does its job as a, as a piece of art is uh, soothing soothingly identifiable uh, with with the human, my human spirit. Um, and, and so you touched upon our questions. Uh, really, we asked you in advance, but the idea of um, what it will look like in the future, uh, what art will look like in the future of um, the, in, in uh, post-apocalyptic art. Um, I think it might just look like what, what I'm looking at now, what we're looking at now, your art is kind of what we were um, looking for. But then I think also your uh, living example of um, carrying a, a duty uh, of a responsibility of, uh, of, um, of a person in the, in the world right now. Um, that it's not all, um, uh, you know, traditional um, or, you know, self-serving, uh, I guess, uh, Greenwald would call it kitsch art. We're not we're not doing this uh, this um, help me out here. This um, this traditional and yeah, and there's examples of it today, right? With uh, what what would be some of the art we're talking about? If we're if I guess you have to know what you're pushing back against. Uh, you know, in music, it, for me, music is most palpable because I've constantly felt myself surrounded by music and um, the idea of um, uh, 
I've mentioned before punk music and British punk music has really always been wonderful in articulating uh, problems in, in ways. Um, and, you know, punk existed while disco was happening, and disco is the exact opposite end of the spectrum with uh, also beautiful, happy feeling, endorphin pumping. Uh, Donna Summers, you know, lovely, everything will be okay, let's just have a great time together and wear satin and do our hair with aerosol sprays and put on all the makeup that I enjoy putting on, makes me feel really pretty and wonderful and, and, and gorgeous. I mean, this is a part of myself I'm not going to deny. I'm looking at you and you're gorgeous and you're wearing your hair up in this way and your, your face is full of... Of, of fresh blood and your skin's clear and you're really gorgeous. But it's not, yeah, but I'm just, I'm yeah, kind of no, riffing yeah, yeah. on the idea that, yeah. okay, so it doesn't mean that we're not talking about, I guess where my mind is going in this ramble is that we're not going, we're not advocating for something uh, that's uh, flagellating, that's, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's, um, well, Jackie was saying that need for hope and some sort of, um, mm -hmm. we need beauty. Mm -hmm. And it, it is, so, yeah, thoughts. I, 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 I think that's a really interesting point about um, self-flagellation. And I feel like myself, um, as an artist and a human, I tend to, when, when I find when I find research about, say, where e-waste goes or plastic, I tend to try and, you know, eradicate plastic from my life completely. And unfortunately, we do live in our modern world. It is impossible to be um, completely good. I don't know if you've seen The Good Place, um, but I think in Series 3 they talk about... I don't want to spoil it for any of your listeners... Um, maybe I'll just touch upon it. The fact that you you can't possibly be completely good, you you know, because we you know you buy, um, you know you you might need a new T-shirt, and you go and buy it, and it's not organic cotton, and the fields have been sprayed with fertilizer, or who it's been made by, you know that sort of thing. So we are this sort of tangled sort of mess, and to go back to the fact that we. Um, you know, with the beauty metaphor, the we, I think that when you talk about, um, how can I explain this? I think when you talk about, um, you know, that we still need to find some sort of beauty and hope. I think that maybe we need to find new ways of enjoying and looking at life, because um, I, I mean, today, as you sort of commented on my look, today I've got some mascara on and I've got a little bit of blusher on. So, and I sometimes have this kind of, um, you know, um, what do you call it when you're pulling a, a tug of war, a, a tug of war with myself because I think, well, that mascara is plastic, and where will that end up? And I'm supposed to be exploring that on my art, so I'm a hypocrite, hypocrite. But yeah, I've been grown up and sort of um, encouraged to see that as beauty, and actually maybe we need to come into the come into a time where we're actually seeing um going back to seeing that nature is uh, beautiful and that makes us beautiful if we're tending to the earth 
then that's making us physically beautiful and really sort of having a look at you know our the, the way we see things the way that our wires going back to that metaphor are organized so that the way we see our world is that making sense yeah it's and i don't want to take away from what you're saying i don't uh but i i've been running along your canal and um I, I'm in the Bronx, and I do have some greenery. It, it, actually, the Bronx is the most green spot in the city, and that's why I moved there, because there's loads of places to run. But as uh, the last year or two of environmentalism and kind of shedding the, the punk rock look where it's a lot of black makeup and it's a lot of hairspray, and the idea that I feel the prettiest when I'm running and then I get this glow, it's kind of like a pregnancy glow, even though I've never been pregnant, but you feel beautiful because you've really enjoyed yourself in nature. The same thing when I don't feel so enthused to run, I go on a hike or uh, Jess here has a beautiful dog and she goes and rescues the dog from running into the fields and playing with the, the lambs when it's not supposed to and the sheep. But um, I don't wanna, I mean, it's difficult as women, uh, for sure, because um, I think the fear there as artists is that you're going to be this, um, I don't know, uh, that you have to forsake your, um, your femininity. Mm. Um, and, 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 and the same goes with, with art. I think that's more gendered and, and different, not to make it complicated. Yeah. Um I mean, just when you were saying about the heavy makeup and things, where, I mean, I, when I was little, when I was eight, I saw my, when I, my dad took me to London, I saw my first group of punks in the 90s and I just fell in love. I just thought these were the most magical creatures I've ever seen and, um, you know, I really aspired to be one and I suppose... Um, that all comes into it in terms of I'm just trying to relate it back to art um, and thinking at the moment what I'm having real trouble with is the fact that I want to paint but it's really difficult to find paints that um, are safe for the environment um, and just linking that back to the fact that you know clothes and makeup and things is that it, it's really difficult to find mm. Um, ways to um, live both both sort of worlds, worlds. Mm. and that's what we've got to find. And there are loads of. I mean, I'm always so inspired by all these um, influencers on Instagram and YouTube who are trying to find new ways to make their own lipstick and you know find their way to make their own paint. Um, you know, and I'm sat at home and I've got all this acrylic paint that essentially gets. Uh, whenever I wash a paintbrush gets you know flushed into the water stream which really is <laughs> just sort of um, what do you call it is, is the opposite to what I'm trying to <laughs> say and there's alternative it leads me because I was a I was trained as a photographer and one of my mentors showed me uh, alternative processing with salt uh, salt and sun uh, uh, you know um, processes like salt paper making salt paper as a as a as a negative but then and, and then so I think of um, found objects and I, I remember living with um, a pair of 
uh, what country was it? Um, Bolivian uh, artists in uh, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn in the early thousands, and they would uh, dye their they made leather bags and they dyed it in coffee, and um, it stayed. I mean, and and so you know, I wonder just like your wires, the thought comes to mind of you know appropriating like. Pollock was a genius. I mean, I could stare at his work forever and just feel so soothed by it because he has the bits of um, the street put into, uh, you know, cigarette butts and um, receipts and bits of trees and rubbish and things. So, I mean, maybe, I mean, it seems as though with, as, as art is, as a process, it unravels itself. So it's it, what, an, as an artist, you're just in the process, you're owning being in the process of the question. Yes. So you are in, that is all it is to be an artist. I am in, I am saying, I am questioning, mm. and I am owning that. Um, and so it's really just seeing the answers and also utilizing them, incorporating them, and then discarding them when it's served its purpose and or re you know revisiting it's really just these cycles of revisiting and saying well where did I go from that project and what's the next thing and I think when you say that um, you, you know you're putting emphasis on question the artist is sort of quite throwing up these questions I suppose I mean what I get from that is that um, at the moment I've got the choice of any material I want and to go back to your sort of post-apocalyptic scenario is that this is sort of I'm sort of I'm going from like sci-fi movies here but I'm imagining this sort of dark landscape with thick smell and hanging in the air um, and you know that I haven't got a choice like like going back to cave uh, people I no longer have a choice of what materials I've just got in front of me um, you know what I have in front of me is, and I have to use them and I suppose at the moment we have this luxury of choice but also it's quite choices uh, I don't know if you've heard of the um, neuroscientist called Daniel Levitin, he wrote a book called The Organised Mind, and he says that actually choice is incredibly um, exhausting for the human brain, and I suppose the fact that we've got so much choice, um, I have a choice whether to, um, you know, uh, ruin the planet with my acrylic painting, or not make art at all, I suppose that's quite a it's quite a responsibility for us at the moment. We are on the brink of um, a very important part of human history, well, h history of the earth, um, and we have a choice, uh, you know, all of us, and that's real uh, responsibility. So it is, you know, it is a, it, that's the, I, I suppose, just what, as you were saying, this, the artist responsibility, you know, the, the question, that's a, uh, that that's sort of for everybody. That might be the question we're asking people to engage in. Yeah. That might be the the moment. And I want to end on that note because I think you've given us so much lovely things to think about. And really, thank you. And I I'm I hope everyone looks at uh, Susanna's work because it's beautiful thank and you. really 
really soothing. Thank you. Uh, you can you can check me out at uh, Instagram at Susanna Pal Artist, and that's S U S A N N A H P A L, and then Artist. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much.